Good afternoon and welcome. I'm uh, honored and uh, extremely pleased to present to you our uh, speaker today, Dr. Khalid Furani. Uh, Dr. Furani is an uh, Associate Professor of Anthropology at uh, Tel Aviv University. His research interests include, among many others, social theory, modernity, language and literature, secularism, Palestine, and the history of anthropology. In addition to many articles in topmost journals, Professor Furani has also published uh, a book, a book-long ethnography titled Silencing the Sea, Secular Rhythms in Palestinian Poetry, 2012 in, uh, with Stanford University yes. Press. And his next book, Insha'Allah, Redeeming Anthropology, a Theological Critique of a Modern Science, is forthcoming this year with Oxford University Press. Yes. And the title of his talk today is Putting Israel on the Couch, a Palestinian Challenge from Within the Leviathan. Thank you. Thank you, Yaakov. Uh, I appreciate your invitation to come. It's a privilege and it's an honor. Uh, thank you all for coming today, this afternoon. I'm very pleased to be here with you. Uh, do you hear me okay? Yeah. Can you hear me? Okay, good. May I ask just the door to be closed? It helps me with yeah. the... Yeah, well, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think there are a few disclaimers. Uh, we have 40 mi minutes, okay? Uh, a few disclaimers that I feel I owe you, uh, my audience, for you to better understand where I'm coming from. I think I have seven of them. So um, I feel first I ought to explicate to you the terms of uh, the title, the title of my talk, uh, Putting Israel on the Couch, A Palestinian Challenge from Within the Leviathan. Uh, in some sense, I feel my, my task uh, today and in this uh, inquiry generally is to take you with me uh, to the basement under the basement, as it were, to the basement concealed under the basement. I'm trying to go, to put it differently, I'm trying to go two flights down uh, into the unconscious of our modern political imagination. And that might make uh, the ways I, I use certain terms a bit tricky. So you may rightly ask, why Israel? Why couch? Why Leviathan? And in what sense Palestinian? So let me just spend a few uh, minutes to explain to you something about this. Why Israel? So I should make that clear from the outset. I happen to be a Palestinian citizen of Israel. Uh, I'm uh, born and raised in Haifa. I teach at Tel Aviv University, as Yaakov said. But Israel, I, I, le let me make that clear, is doesn't in itself per se interest me in this inquiry uh, because it, 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 in this paper it's uh, um, a vehicle, not the terminus of my writing. It's not the final destination of my writing. I, I, I go through it, Israel that is, to arrive at... Uh, uh, my explicit and primary object of uh, uh, thinking here, which is sovereignty. Um, but why the couch? The couch on the assumption, uh, clearly this is a play on the psychoanalytic term, uh, that, that uh, indeed sovereignty, my, my primary concept for today, uh, is the unthought of political imagination. Hence the couch. It's the unconscious, as political theology tells us these days, of political uh, 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 thinking. Um, so I'll be curious to visit uh, uh, what happens uh, when we go down to the grammar of our modern political imagination. It's the soul, in other words. Uh, sovereignty, I take it to be, not alone, uh, to be the soul of our, of our politics, hence the catch. 
Leviathan, simply, if we're going to talk about sovereignty, how could we not uh, revisit such a canonical, constitutive, and founding text like uh, Hobbes' Leviathan? Okay? <coughs> and in what sense Palestinian? Um, simply in the sense of uh, uh, being a sovereignless uh, subject. Especially after, after the nationality law, if you know what I'm talking about, where uh, the only self-recognized uh, legitimate self-determination uh, is the prerogative of uh, Jewish citizens of Israel. So what happens to us pal so sovereignless Palestinians? And so it's an interesting exercise to think about sovereignty from the condition of being sovereignless, how to look at it from the outside. In, that, in, 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 uh, in broad terms, this is what I'm trying to do, to think outside sovereignty about sovereignty. That's what's only one disclaimer. I'll go to the next. I'm also an anthropologist, so this is a new field for me, really. And I'm, I am very eager to hear your comments and critical comments, of course, and, and questions. Especially as, as, in some sense, this is all a preface to something that's going to engage me for the next few years. Uh, but I'm writing as an anthropologist. Uh, however, not for anthropologists. Uh, this is an intervention in political thought. This is a political essay. Uh, so it's a new terrain, new field for me. Although one could argue what I'm conducting eventually, or essentially, I should say, what I'm conducting is a quintessentially anthropological exercise. How so? In the sense that we anthropologists think of our discipline as one that is charged with uh, familiarizing the odd. Sometimes, by the way, that's how people talk about philosophy. So I'm trying to familiarize the odd. And so you may ask, but what is the odd here, Khalid? And uh, the odd, in my case, would be the concept coming from the Muslim tradition, and that's the concept of khalifa, the, 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 the bizarre, scary things that we don't want to touch. Uh, but in what sense do I come with the term khalifa to this conversation today? Of course, I'm not thinking simply of the name of a political office in, post in Muslim political history. It's not what interests me. Uh, what interests me is, in some sense, how uh, the Quran itself uh, invokes this term, a Khalifa, as as in a transient, a transient. I'm sorry, transient inheritor uh, and builder of the earth, as entrusted by the divine. Uh, if you'd like, I can uh, refer you back to uh, the second chapter in the Quran, chapter two, uh, where God uh, describes the Quran describes. God is um, anointing on earth a khalifa. If, and by the way, anecdotally and ethnographically, khalifa in, in Palestinian society or Arab society in general could, mean, could, ha could be the last name of a Jewish family, of a Christian family, or a Muslim family. There's nothing essentially Islamic about this term. Each and every one of us could be a khalifa, and I'll explain that more later. I just need you to, at the moment, remember this is not the name of a political office. So rather than abandon this, uh, uh, I call it earth-preserving concept to earth corruptors, given the age of Daesh and Islamophobia, I wish to recover an access, uh, a Quranic access to this term Khalifa, for the purpose of what? Of the purpose of interrogating the paradigm of modern sovereignty. Uh, so it's not that this is a paper about reinstituting the uh, Khalifa as a political uh, institution, but rather uh, explore the usefulness of this notion of Khalifa as an ethical political disposition for building and preserving the earth. 
I'm arguing in a sense for reaccessing the Quranic sense of the term before institutional uh, sediments have accrued to this concept. Um, and as again, to reiterate, I'm doing this from a Palestinian standpoint, and what this means, just to be clear, is a, a, a sovereignless subject of a, a nationalist Jewish uh, sovereignty, meaning Israel, from within the belly of the of the Leviathan, uh, and with with the, with the sense of there is in me at least a curiosity to interrogate uh, the costs and specifically the ethical costs of the safety. Uh, the ethical costs of the safety once it's entrusted to the sea monster that we otherwise know since Hobbes as the Leviathan. And in interrogating the costs, the ethical costs uh, of the Leviathan, I'm seeking cultural resources, as it were, outside the master's own house, outside the, the Leviathan, whereby perhaps in my case, uh, the Muslim tradition could offer perhaps some emancipatory resources for all uh, inhabitants of Palestine, Israel, be they Jews, Muslims, Christians, or none of the above. And finally, uh, this will be the end of my disclaimers for today. When you hear me today use the word sovereign, please keep in mind that I um, uh, use it to mean both the individual, but also the collective. Okay, The collective as sovereign, but also the individual as sovereign. <coughs> okay, maybe I should tell you about a, uh, something that has inspired this uh, talk and the, the, the paper on which it's based. And that's, as I said, the uh, Quranic uh, uh, reference to uh, human beings as such, human, qua human, as Khalifa. Uh, that each one of us is, in a sense, Khalifa by mere uh, being humans on this earth. Uh, it's a telos, to put it in a philosophical term. Khalifa is everyone's telos here. Uh, and this is a crucial point, uh, this has been a crucial point for launching my, my writing. Uh, because I'm trying to assess, to measure, to what extent the concept of Khalifa uh, 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 partakes in an ethics, participates, articulates an ethics that is fundamentally at odds with our modern political imagination, insofar that it's an imagination that is beholden to um, the paradigm of sovereignty. The final objective, if you would like, the goal of this intervention uh, is to explore directions for invigorating uh, what I call a decolonized uh, uh, Palestinian political imagination. I'm trying to basically look at the malaise of Palestinian political imagination. Why, why state? What kind of state? And maybe there's something better than a state for us to fight for as a Palestinian people. Uh, and should, should sovereignty continue to be the regnant concept governing our political imagination. The strategy for me to, to, to stir the water there with, with our political imagination is to uh, follow an immediate objective. So if, let's say, the, 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 the far objective is to, to uh, question the limits of Palestinian imagination, my uh, more immediate uh, objective, my, meaning my strategy to get to that goal, is to dethrone the concept of sovereignty. And please pay attention to this word. I'm saying dethrone, not dismiss. Dethrone the concept of uh, sovereignty, by which I mean 
If you ask me what does that mean to dethrone, I mean contesting uh, the sovereignty of sovereignty concept. Why should it have such a hold in our political imagination? Why should it be so constitutive of our political grammar? Um, and perhaps allow for another concept to be in the table. So you see, I'm not saying let's ditch, let's uh, uh, throw away sovereignty. Maybe there will be good arguments at some point in the future where we should keep thinking about sovereignty when we dig into our political, ima political imagination. But I'm saying it ought not be the only concept or the, 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 the primal concept governing our political imagination. Perhaps the telos that we otherwise know as Khalifa could be such other rival concept. What is my tactic for reaching these goals? My tactic, as you may have guessed already, is to return to Hobbes's Leviathan, what he called the soul of politics. Hence, again, the couch. We're going to the soul of politics. And specifically, uh, to use a, a, a reference from Walter Benjamin, let us drill into the paradigm of sovereignty. Let's do some conceptual drilling here. <coughs> and when I say drilling, I have in mind a principle within the paradigm. So let's say the paradigm is, this, let's say for example, just to illustrate visually, the paradigm is a square. That's the paradigm of sovereignty. Within that square, there is a circle. The circle is the principle of sovereignty. Uh, excuse me, see I already messed. The principle of indivisibility. Within the paradigm, there is a, uh, a principle, and that principle is indivisibility. Actually, it's been called not just a principle within the paradigm, it's the defining characteristic of sovereignty. It's the foundation of political thought. I say that uh, by relying on uh, a genealogist of sovereignty. This is Bar Bartelson, Jan Bartelson. Let me give you then, I owe you at this point, with, without any further delay, a schematic uh, presentation of my uh, overall argument. Okay, so far this has been just uh, paving the road to what the argument is in its current structure, and I think I've identified uh, four components. Um, I'm allowing that constitutive to the principle of sovereignty is a categorical denial of the possibility of self-oppression. In other words, this principle of indivisibility is constituted by denying that humans can wrong themselves. Uh, wronging uh, oneself in Arabic is known as dhulmin nafs, okay? a reference that I'll talk about more later. Uh, this foundational denial of uh, uh, wronging oneself as a possibility uh, uh, binds the sovereignty paradigm to an impoverishment, and more specifically, an ethical impoverishment. And more precisely, an impoverishment of our ethics of fragility. And therefore, I, I argue, it should not be uh, alone on the table. It must contend with rival concepts. A concept like paradigm that does not recognize that we can wrong ourselves as humans should not be the only conference, the concept on the table. Uh, uh, this political imagination, therefore, ought to host rival conceptions of governance, the governance of oneself, but also of society. Uh, contending with the paradigm of sovereignty, but don't partake and don't participate in, um, in the danger to the ethics of fragility. And from within the Muslim tradition uh, uh, of formulating the human telos, I suggest uh, the inheritor or the vicegerent or the successor, in one word, the khalifa, could offer such a rival contending concept. With the help of such notion, it becomes possible to chart new questions for Palestinian political imagination. 
or any political imagination. Doesn't have to be Palestinian. At some point, you may argue with me and say, Khalid, there's nothing essentially Palestinian about your thing. And I'm happy to discuss that with you. But the point is to uh, forge a political imagination that's not beholden to the logic of sovereignty, uh, and specifically its ethical impoverishment. And uh, by keeping access, how? By keeping access to an ethics of fragility, offering thus a, a rival aspirations for personal and collective flourishing. I've just finished describing to you uh, schematically uh, the four um, components of my argument. I'll get a chance to summarize it also at the end of this talk. But why sovereignty? Okay, let me elaborate. Uh, if you want to, in other words, I'm, I'm sharing with you a question. If you want to contest, if you want to explore new directions in political imagination, why go to sovereignty <coughs> concept? It, sovereignty, as political theology teaches us, is the unthought of liberalism. And it actually, we find resources in political theology uh, for putting the state as an instance of sovereignty on the couch. Let's remember the state wasn't always, hasn't always been the embodiment of sovereignty. It may be a quintessential, historically quintessential embodiment of sovereignty, but the state remains an instance, instantiation of how sovereignty looks like. Uh, the idea here is to go to the soul of the political, namely sovereignty. <coughs> and again, Israel is but an instance of sovereignty. Uh, in fact, 300 years separate 48, the founding of Israel, and the Peace of Westphalia. Uh, right? Exactly 300 years, exactly three <coughs> centuries separate the, Wies of, uh, the Peace of Westphalia and uh, the founding of Israel. Uh, but it remains an instance it meaning Israel. Uh, it remains an instance of uh, uh, modern sovereignty, uh, but I want to go to the unconscious that enables something like Israel. That is sovereignty concept. Um, it's in fact, you could say the unconscious of states being states, modern nation states, that is. Israel is only one of them. But I also, if I join political theology by paying attention to the concept of sovereignty, I also part way with it. Uh, I part ways with political theology because political theology, for all the insightful things we learn from it, uh, it strikes me as uh, sharing something with liberalism uh, in, that, uh, in that it retains, along with liberalism, a royal place for sovereignty. In other words, political theology does not question the sovereignty of sovereignty, yet that's exactly what I'm pushing uh, towards. Uh, and that's where uh, my in intervention, in some sense, becomes uh, ethical, in that I want to connect to an ethical horizon that dethrones, but doesn't dismiss sovereignty. I, I'm trying to connect to an ethics of fragility, uh, which allows us to, as we reinvigorate our political imagination, to think also about uh, finitude, about revelation, as necessary for human flourishing. This ethics of fragility uh, is all the more relevant for a reinvigorating political imagination, uh, given the transient, the transience. I'm sorry, given the transience or the finitude of states as states. Uh, hence, my focus on the pivot, which is sovereignty, and not on its transient instances, meaning the state. Uh, I'm basically trying to focus on the norm, the founding norm, meaning sovereignty, and not on its particular uh, uh, embodiment in specific forms, 
hence the state. Uh, you may wonder, Khaled, why are you approaching the state as something transient, as a, as a transient form? Um, allow me to bring you two testimonies. I have several, but for this talk, maybe two will suffice. Uh, one of them comes from Hobbes himself, from within the Leviathan, we get to understand how states come and go. They're, they're not everlasting, something we know all too well in the Middle East, but not only. Um, but also Arabic language attests to the fact that states are transient. For those of you who may be sufficiently familiar with Arabic, the word for state in Arabic is dawla. dawla. Do you know what else dawla means in Arabic? Uh, it means, for example, rotation. Rotation. So Ibn Khaldun, when he talks about the dawla, it's that which means, which rotates. In fact, in, in Bedouin uh, folklore, the coffee pot is called dawla because it goes around. Uh, it's not like the Latin sta state coming from stasis, right? So, we, we, so Arabic language gives us one indication to how states don't last, they come and go. But so does the, the founder of theories of the state. Let's go to the mortal god, the axiomoronic paradoxical term, the modern god, the, the divine that dies. Um, uh, Hobbes himself, you can read for yourself, uh, stipulates when do states die. I don't want to read it uh, all for you now, but he's basically saying once the states, as a state, begins to mess with people's past, they have basically signed their death announcement. <laughs> okay, take a minute to read it. No, read it now because we want it also to be read. Okay, I put down for one of the most effectual seeds of the death of any state that the conquerors require not only a submission of men's actions to them for the future, but also an approbation of, their, of all their actions past, when there is scarce a commonwealth in the world whose beginnings can in conscience be justified. 1651. Okay. That's for later. Uh, to return to sovereignty, therefore, is to return, as I said, to the grammar of our political uh, uh, modern imagination. Uh, the grammar, also because Rousseau himself, continuing the tradition of Hobbes, uh, in the social contract, talks about the following, that the principle of political life dwells, it dwells in the sovereign authority. Thus, sovereignty becomes for us, for anyone curious to uh, question limits of political imagination, uh, becomes a site to open to, uh, to questions about freedom, death, community, and even revelation. Yes, revelation. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but I hopefully will get a chance to tell you why revelation. So you see, in other words, the, the concept of sovereignty is a site, a fecund, uh, resourceful site from which to open basic questions of what makes up our politics. Questions of freedom, question of death, questions of community, and so on and so forth. Having acknowledged the centrality of the sovereignty paradigm, right? I hope I conveyed that to you, how central to our political imagination the sovereignty concept. Um, and within it, also, the indivisibility, indivisibility principle. Let's see what happens when Hobbes and Rousseau together formulate modern sovereignty, the soul of uh, politics. As they form formulated according to a divine paradigm of modern ruling, meaning if you're not sovereign, you're not legitimate, right? Uh, there lies an in, uh, a, a, a dissociable and defining principle within the paradigm known as the indivisibility principle. Uh, 
But what happens is that this indivisibility principle within the paradigm of sovereignty, it demands oneness. Again, following the uh, logic of transferring divine theological concepts into secular political concepts. Just like God is one, so this, the earthly sovereign is one. Meaning he or she who is sovereign uh, must also be one, must also be indivisible. So I'm, remember I said I'm drilling. I want us to go further and further into, into the atom of the, the paradigm. Uh, but what that means to be one and to be indivisible is that the sovereign is self-sufficient and autonomous. Uh, be that the king, the, the ruler, or the people, or the individual. And thus, all the way from Jean Boudin, who wrote before Hobbes, all the way to Isaiah Berlin, indivisibility principle has been A, dissociable from, and two, divinized along with the sovereignty paradigm, meaning an insistent, a, 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 a continuous insistence on the oneness of the sovereign. It's the sovereign self-sufficiency and autonomy, or man be, uh, unto himself becomes divinized, the conscience becomes divinized. And this has been uh, the, the, the regnant ways of thinking about uh, both the governing of states and the governing of human souls. Uh, but political theology is less concerned with the indivisibility principle, as you may know, and more concerned with, especially after Agamben, uh, with exception. Uh, but let's pay attention to how, how theologically rooted uh, and prominent uh, this notion of indivisibility. We can find it, I want to argue, but would like your help with that maybe in the discussion, that uh, at the foundation of this principle of indivisibility is perhaps some some Lutheran thinking, Luther, Luther in the sense of uh, Martin Luther. Um, so let's go back to Luther and see how he left his own imprints on modern states, including Jew Jewish modern state. Let's see Luther at work. Uh, my source for that, and maybe you have someone better to suggest, is Jean Elstein, Bethke Elstein, where she cites him uh, as someone who has divinized conscience uh, in his rebellion against papal authority, where he described his, him, his state of being in it with his conscience as utterly free in conscience in innermost being, innermost being, meaning where freedom is, uh, where conscience is. He experiences freedom in conscience. Maybe this is not clear entirely what's happening, uh, why conscience, but I hope in just a few minutes to be able to connect you, why, I'm, why am I getting to Luther and to conscience? Um, but for me to do that, I have to close my uh, terms of engagement now with political theology. For all the dark spots, I'm trying to say, for all the dark spots that political theology has helped us understand about the working of uh, uh, liberal governance and, and liberal democracies, how they conceal violence, how they conceal the exception and the sacred under their secular, secular um, guise, uh, there seems a tenacious, I want to argue critically with political theology, there seems to be a tenacious blind spot. And that spot is, as I said, the sovereignty of sovereignty concept. And the attention I want to draw to is here the attention to the uh, uh, danger it poses to the ethics, not to flexibility or applica applicability of the paradigm of sovereignty. 
In other words, what interests me, to take this a bit empirically, what, not the debate whether should there be one state, two state, three states, a half state, but rather what is the state anyway? Is it worth having? What kind of danger, ethical danger it poses? So if political theology shares with liberalism it's uh, the enabling hold of sovereignty over our political imagination, my attempt in this project is to ask after a century-long dissolution, dissolving, I should say, actually, dissolving of the Arab um, uh, and, and Muslim governance since uh, 1916. You know why 1916, right? The uh, Sykes-Picot. After a century of dissolving uh, what we now to call Middle East, uh, my interest is not how to share the apple, how Jews and Arabs can, you know, have a state or how each part could have a state. But again, uh, and not, you know, should we have an apple of our own? But rather, but is it an apple that we uh, should taste from? Hence my need for a molecular inquiry, molecular, conceptually speaking, molecular, meaning I go into the paradigm of sovereignty, I uh, zoom in on the principle of indivisibility in the paradigm, and then look closely at conscience, and uh, specifically the demand for oneness. Drilling into the principle of indivisibility, and the kind of ethics it either fosters or frustrates in the world today. The principle of indivisibility stands as one of the logical properties of sovereignty, meaning it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that, indivi uh, excuse me, it's something that uh, sovereignty demands, that it, that it contains the, this property of indivisibility. In fact, Bartelson tells us it, this principle is the condition of possibility for sovereignty. Just uh, as God was, is one and thus indivisible, so too are modern sovereigns. Hobbes and Rousseau articulate uh, this oneness and then which has been endorsed with us all the way to the 21st century as indispensable for sovereignty. But who is the sovereign, according to Hobbes? The sovereign is the one who carries the person that is the commonwealth. And here we, we get to hear him, how he talks about the indivisibility. And is by definition, is indivisible. For it is the unity of the representer, he tells us, not the unity of the represented that makes, makes the person one. And I'm getting closer to my crucial point of intervention now. Now that we understand that the sovereign is one, the sovereign is indivisible, uh, what's this indivisibility about? In formulating their in the indivisibility principle in the way they did, Hobbes and Rousseau together make, and this is a crucial point of the intervention, make justice and injustice as valid only within the contract, right? Outside the Leviathan, there is unnecessary death, violence, the war of all against all. Hmm? Uh, there, and only there, um, we cannot talk about injustice and justice, because those two categories are only relevant to uh, society, not in nature and not in solitude. You may ask why. Why does Hobbes deny the fact that injustice and justice uh, are relevant outside society, outside the contract? Uh, and this is the crucial point, because he, he and Rousseau together argue that it is actually impossible to wrong yourself. You cannot wrong yourself. 
Injustice towards oneself is impossible. One, oneness of the sovereign, be the sovereign be that the king, the people, or single person, precludes injustice towards oneself. Because the sovereign is one, and one cannot harm oneself. Let us actually read them both articulating this denial. And the definition of injustice is no other than the not performance of covenants, right? So you see, injustice slash injustice are relevant only to contracts. If they, meaning justice and injustice, were faculties, they might be in a man that were alone in the world, as well as his senses and passions. They, meaning justice and injustice, are qualities that they relate to men in society, not in solitude. Further with Hobbes we hear, Whatsoever a sovereign doth, it can be no injury to any of his subjects, nor ought, he, nor ought he to be by any of them accused of injustice, because to do injury to oneself is impossible. Just these words that I underlined is what launched, in some sense, my inquiry in writing this piece. To do injury to oneself is impossible. Because I'm curious... Um, excuse me. Because it's here that I begin to raise the question, uh, what ethical capabilities are emaciated uh, with this denial? With the uh, sovereignty regime that demands the denial of uh, self-oppression. Now, let's contrast this. Um, oh, no, I have to show you this also before I contrast with the notion of uh, uh, wronging oneself in the Quran. Hobbes says, men shall judge what is lawful and unlawful not by the law itself, but by their own conscience. That is to say, by their own private judgment. Now we understand maybe better why I brought Luther on conscience, because in some sense, if we want to re do a genealogy of this denial, one has to go back to Luther. Uh, and Rousseau continues Hobbes, as Hobbes continued Luther, by saying, Conscience never deceives us. You see how they absolve conscience from everything. Conscience can never go to court. Conscience never deceives us because laws are acts of the general will. Uh, no, no longer ask if the law can be unjust because no one is unjust to himself. You see how the strikingly similar Hobbes and Rousseau, no one is unjust to himself uh, and because no one is unjust to himself. Almost to the word. But then the question arises for us. What kind of ethical accounts we can generate of our failures or, or fortitudes as ethical subjects if we fail to recognize the possibility of self-harm, of wronging oneself as a possibility, if we absolve conscience from any tribunal? If sovereignty, to move forward, if sovereignty is no longer the Archimedean point of our politics, meaning if we look at sovereignty completely from the outside, if costs to our sovereignty-bound ethics are interrogated, we could find two forms of enslavement that we maybe should recognize and interrogate. A, our relationship to our death, and two, our relationship to reason. This is a place where we could see two flights of consciousness down <coughs> under the instances or symptoms that is uh, the modern state, in this case Israel. Uh, what the crushing of ethics of fragility due to sovereignty principle of indivisibility, what, what such crushing could entail. Let me focus just a little bit on the first casualty. 
our relationship to death, our mortality, or what sometimes philosopher calls the ethics of finitude. Usurped by the mortal God, mortal God, the state, right? As Hobbes called it. The state is so deeply anxious, Kant tells us, Paul Kahn, from uh, political theology, it's so deeply anxious of its own death that it makes the subjects of the state or the citizens enslaved insofar that they don't recognize and don't authentically attend to their own essence, which is their own mortality. To bring an empirical example to what I'm discussing conceptually, think of Israel's obsession with Iran. Iran, 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 in the meantime, car accidents, drugs, and, and labor fatalities as, as primal cause uh, of death in the country. Um, so if the sovereigns cannot wrong themselves, how can individuals see that they wrong themselves? <coughs> how could they wrong themselves? Let's think of what I argue always my, with my 13-year-old son. How many hours do you need to spend on Fortnite game every day? <laughs> I'm trying to convince him that he's wronging himself. Am I successful? I can't be sure. <laughs> but this is one, one way I'm trying to mobilize wronging oneself argument against my son's uh, obsession with Fortnite game. But, but this is just, you know, personal example. Um, I, but how tenable is this vision of reality, really? Uh, in a reality in which individuals are, are seen as incapable of wronging themselves. When we basically absolve uh, our conscience from examination. And why, why should we examine conscience uh, in the first place? Because of uh, this absolving. Um, let me go to the second casualty, and that's the place of revelation. Our relationship to revelation. If we look directly at the insecurity of the states, um, if we look, if we look, if we look directly at the insecurity of the state's governing paradigm, meaning specifically the insecurity or slash instability of the sovereignty concept, how it itself as a concept, sovereignty is open to definitional change, meaning it's malleable, it's protean, and it's not essential about politics. One thing we learned from Bartelson in his genealogy of sovereignty, it's not essentially or inherently a political concept. Actually, it's an ethical as well as an epistemic concept, meaning it's to do with how we organize our knowledge. Uh, that could mean that the loss of a sense of frailty, the loss of our access to ethics of fragility, will make us lose a sense of the fragility of reason. How so? In that reason retains its sovereignty over revelation and keeps the two, meaning reason and revelation, as separate and not only separate, reason and revelation remain estranged from each other. This is, I'm trying to say, the epistemic uh, cost or casualty of crushing our ethics of fragility because we take reason to be everything. Uh, so, in other words, the task of questioning modern political imagination may turn out to be the task of interrogating not only the claims of the state to reason, which is you know, what political theologians do, oh, how the state pretends that it's a normal sane state, but it's really a crazy state. You've seen that exercise in many places. I'm saying the task is even further than that. The task is not only to, claim, to question claims of state to reason, but also reason's claim to sovereignty. See, We turn the table around and question what reason is. We question the tyranny of reason, uh, 
and perhaps that too could emerge as a second form of enslavement. And the irony is here, to bring an empirical example from the two flights down into consciousness, the irony is that we have a nationalist, secular Jewish state participating in the Western secular demotion uh, uh, of an alienation of revelation in the world. Let me summarize the argument, even though I feel I skipped a slide. Um, yes, I skipped this slide. You, you heard me talk a lot about uh, wronging oneself. Um, I, I've been informed in saying that by a couple of uh, verses in the Quran, uh, the, the concept would be dhulm nafs or uh, doing injustice to oneself. Um, this happens in multiple places in the Quran. I just chose two here. For example, in chapter 2, Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, Moses, uh, I think this is full citation, yeah. And Moses said to his people, oh, my people, indeed, you are wronging yourselves by worshipping the calf. Okay? But this is just a fragment of a story of the encounter uh, between Moses and the Israelites in Sinai. And then there's another story, the parable of um, um, the parable of the cave. Surah 18, Surah Al-Kahf. Okay? And uh, this is a reference to a man who uh, uh, was uh, endowed with a lot of wealth, uh, and he mistook himself and his property to be eternal, lasting forever, without an end. As, and that is considered in the Quran, uh, thinking yourself immortal, to be a form of wronging yourself. Dhulm nafs And he entered his garden being unjust to his soul, dhalimun li nafsihi, saying, I don't think this will ever perish. This meaning his wealth. Um, so... Uh, towards ending, let me say the following. We have a coda here. Could Western political imagination accept and admit migrant notions outside the regimes of sovereignty, in which sovereignty concept is itself dethroned and is allowed to contend with other concepts? In the Muslim tradition, Khalifa as a human ethical disposition or orientation towards flourishing on the earth doesn't deny frailty, including the frailty that has us wrong ourselves, could it offer such resources? In the search for what I call humility resources, we wanting to stir and invigorate and, uh, uh, and work against the malaise within uh, Palestinian political imagination, we might look into um, uh, Muslim uh, experiences of governance, including Ottoman, our experiments, as in Tunisia, towards a decolonized, wise, and durable governance in what is Israel-Palestine today and for conclusion for conclusion I'll just read you um, the following a, a Palestinian political imagination concerned with human flourishing beyond sovereignty paradigm but including the including the flourishing of toleration in the homeland should critically attend to the land's cultural patrimony I'm talking about Palestine Israel and the rich cultural patrimony of the land this patrimony ineluctably includes, but is not limited to, a kind of governance of self and a governance of politics that had f paradigmatically been the longest on the record in the homeland's history, namely uh, the telos of Khalifa. Political imagination, political imagination, so attentive, uh, um, one that doesn't, in other words, succumb to secularism's discursive walls and discursive checkpoints, could scour this unduly locked uh, chest box, that is the Khalifa, for humility resources that are necessary 
for reformulations of our modern moralities. Such reformulation, benefiting from what Wael Halak in his book called the, uh, the Impossible State, has called the retrieval of Islamic resource, uh, for, excuse me, the retrieval of Islamic moral resources, could aim at a proper binding, a proper thinking of the relationship, how we think better in our imagination of the relationship between reason and revelation, where reason is not tyrant. How we think better the relationship between fact and value. How we think the relation between our ethics and our politics. And of course, how do we face the questions of unity and plurality in politics. Opening that chess box, rather than running away from it, appears to be the urgent task of any imagination that does not want to surrender into the Leviathan's hollowing of toleration. I'm assuming here that one of the most urgent tasks of Palestinian imagination is how do we honor the, 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 the plurality of Palestine. Be it among humans themselves or be it between humans and the habitat, the natural habitat that they precariously inherit and inhabit in Palestine no less than elsewhere. Thank you very much.